Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. Before we get started today, I just want to ask a favor. I am asking you to call the U.S. House of Representatives, 202-224-3121. Ask for the House Select Committee on January 6th and tell the membership there that they must enforce the subpoenas. If people like Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows and Ali Alexander and Dan Scavino are not held to account for defying a congressional subpoena, then we'll know all we need to know about the status of American democracy. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Trig V. Olson, Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and President of Viking Strategies, LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigvi, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Reed. So today we're going to talk about the sudden awakening of elite media and talking heads to the threat against our democracy, as well as how we're looking at 2022. But first, I want to talk about the House Select Committee on January 6th and what they've been up to. So let's get into it. So remember that this past summer, you know, even into the spring, there was this fight over a January 6th commission, right? Like the 9-11 commission, like the Challenger commission, like the Warren commission, something that was going to really dig deep in a bipartisan way into what happened nine months ago on the steps and in the corridors and in the floors of the U.S. House and U.S. Senate chambers. Not surprisingly, Republicans scuttled that because they knew that nothing good was going to come out of that for them. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, therefore, sets up a House Select Committee on January 6th, names two Republicans, ultimately, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger to that, and making Cheney the vice chair of the committee. And they have a few hearings, and as they get deeper into the summer, they start to issue subpoenas for people like Dan Scavino, Donald Trump's social media goon, Mark Meadows, former White House chief of staff, and of course, Steve Bannon, the Leninist of all Leninists. And now fast forward here, you know, we're past Labor Day, we're in mid-October, and as of last Thursday, everyone they'd subpoenaed, they had either flat out said they weren't coming or were quote unquote engaging with the committee. But so far we haven't seen any of these people testify. So far we haven't seen any subpoenas being enforced. And so now where does this leave us? You know, the Bannon's date for deposition is October 14th. That's this Thursday. He's not going to be there. Dan Scavino was literally like in hiding until somebody found him and served him the subpoena. Last week, our partner, Rick Wilson, took to Twitter to say he was hearing that, like, this wasn't going to happen, that there wasn't a lot of will within the committee to actually do these things. And that that created a bit of a firestorm where the committee, which I'm sure they thought was a very strongly worded statement, said that they were rapidly looking at things, would take things seriously. But here we are, mid-October, still haven't seen a hearing, don't have any sense of whether or not anyone's going to be held in contempt for this. So is this January 6th committee, like so much of Washington, 
living in the land before Trump? I think with all of these things, it's hard to know what pieces are going on behind the scenes. Are there people in Washington who would like to see this go away? Certainly on the Republican side, there's a lot of short of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. On the Democrat side, you know, there is a vein of thinking among some that if we simply focus on infrastructure and giving people things, we'll solve our problem. We'll win the election on policy. In truth, for our democracy to heal itself, nothing is more important than an attack orchestrated by one branch, like a literal attack on another branch, getting to the bottom of it. I would like to believe that the people who are on the committee, certainly I think this is true of Cheney and Kinzinger, and I think it's true of the Democrats as well, that they are not going to want to leave any stone unturned because even if others don't in Congress recognize it, the members of the committee recognize that history is going to judge them and there is nothing else in their careers that they will do outside of this that will be judged if they don't get this right. That said, I do think there are a lot of forces that would like to see us move on. But let me ask you this. I mean, this is, I think, all of our concern. And, and look, you know, when Rick posted his Twitter thread, which we can put a link to, Rob, in the show description, we got a lot of pushback. Liz Cheney directly tweeted at Rick and said this was wrong, although turns out he seems to be more right than wrong. We got a fair amount of friction from our friends on the Democratic side of the aisle who said we didn't know what we were talking about. But I think this is always a good reminder that in 2020, our job was to help defeat Donald Trump. In 2021 and 2022, we're a pro-democracy organization. And once in a while, you even have to say to your friends, if you want to save democracy, you got to do what's right. You got to do what's important. And you have to do what you would otherwise not like to do based on how your party thinks, how you think, how you feel, because we're not in normal times anymore. How many times do we have to hear that, you know, a coup that goes unpunished is just a training exercise, right? That's a cliche now. Uh, that doesn't make it not true. And so how do we convince otherwise reasonable Republicans, whoever they are, the two or three dozen left in the U.S. House Republican conference who are too chicken shit to go out publicly, and our friends on the Democratic side of the aisle, like, you got to haul these people up. You got to go Benghazi on them. Republicans knew they were full of shit. And for three years, they kept that charade up. We got real stuff here. What is the holdup? I know, as do you, Rick had multiple sources and was hearing what he tweeted out. And I think given the circumstances, it needed to be said. And it was important that it was said because it's distinctly possible that there are forces at play that want to scuttle this for whatever reasons that they think are out there, that it sets a bad precedent that could be used against them if Republicans took control of the House after 2022 or in some future date, or for whatever the reasons were. I think if those guys don't show up and they've been subpoenaed, then the next logical step in the process would be executing them. Enforcing the subpoenas, you mean? Yeah, exactly. If Bannon doesn't show up, we will find out in a hurry because he's defying a subpoena, which is ironic given how much you know they claim to be the rule of law people. 
the rule of law is going to be enforced. So we're going to find out here in a hurry. I mean, Steve Bannon, I don't know how many hours a day he spends on that cracked out podcast he does, but it's a lot. And I have to assume that Thursday, as we tape here on Tuesday, he will be on that podcast live saying they want me at the Capitol right now and I ain't going. And if they have the guts to throw me in jail, so be it. But they don't. And my biggest concern, Trig, is that he's probably got a 50-50 chance of being right. Are they really going to perp walk Steve Bannon into a federal detention facility? I think they don't have much choice. But whether they have the courage, it's a question of courage. And are they afraid of Steve Bannon? And, you know, that's the tactic that illiberal and autocratic forces use, right? Non-democratic forces try and use fear to impose and put themselves above the rule of law. We're going to find out. And I think if he does not show up, even if he's trying to create and position himself as a martyr, as a political prisoner, it doesn't matter. I mean, if they're unwilling to do this, they need to hear about it. And our supporters, people who are listening, need to be outraged because a branch of a democracy that is incapable of executing its legal powers that it has when it's been attacked as it was on 1-6 at the behest of thugs and another branch of government is one that is careening towards not existing as a democracy. And so we're sort of in that period where we're going to get a moment of truth. And we know what Bannon's going to say. I think one of the things that's important on our side is to be making the point, Steve Bannon's going to do what Steve Bannon's going to do, and we know what he's going to do. The big unanswered question in this is, are the forces of Congress defending itself within the rule of law and constitutional norms? Are they willing to go to the mat and do that? And we're going to find that out. I'm sometimes the guy who's the dark one amongst us, as you know, but I'm actually an optimist to some degree because I do want to believe that those who have chosen some against self-interest, political and otherwise, certainly in the case of Kinzinger and Cheney, that they're going to hold each other accountable to do this, regardless of what other pressures they're getting to not do it. Let me ask you that, because you've got Cheney and Kinzinger be like, hey, we hung ourselves out here. Our political careers, better than 50 percent chance, are over as far as being members of Congress. It may be over completely. I cannot imagine that Kinzinger and Cheney have not received personal threats. You know, they're obviously being pilloried by their own side, but they're doing it because they believe in it. So how do you convince the rest of the committee members, Democrats, all we're asking you to do is do your job? You know, how many times in human history has the bad thing happened because people were afraid that if they did something, the bad thing would happen, and then they get it anyway? And to your point about, well, you know, they're afraid of what might happen to them, you know, if Republicans take power. Well, guess what, gang? If Republicans take power, it doesn't matter anyway. So stop worrying about it. And that's kind of the point, right? If they're afraid that Republicans would do that, not doing it isn't going to impact one iota what Republicans are going to do when you have Steve Scalise getting asked multiple times and refusing to acknowledge the truth about the elections. Like, that's the number two Republican in the House. In the words of Lady Macbeth, they got to screw their courage to the sticking place. And I guess they deserve the benefit of the doubt until Thursday. And if come Thursday, they 
don't execute in the 48 hours that come after Steve Bannon not showing up, if he doesn't show up and there isn't something going on behind the scenes, which I can't imagine that there is, then they need to move forward and they need to send people and have him arrested for defying a subpoena. I mean, if we defied a subpoena, any of the listeners defied a subpoena, you'd likely be sitting in a jail waiting it out. So if Steve Bannon is above the law because they're afraid of the consequences of what that might mean politically or legislatively or otherwise, then they're really not worth the mantle of professing to be leaders in any way, shape, or form. Well, and that's what concerns me is that, you know, the forces of liberalism don't want to be seen as the ones who are locking people up and throwing people in jail. And now, switching it to electoral politics, do you believe if hardcore Democratic voters don't see some backbone out of this committee, is that going to depress them going into next year? Because they're going to be like, well, you had the chance, you had the means, you had the opportunity to fight for democracy. And when you had the chance, you didn't do it. One of the things that I've seen around the world is in places where democracy is receding and autocracy and illiberalism are ascending, there almost inevitably is a moment of truth between another branch, either the judicial branch or the legislative branch, or sometimes both, and the executive branch that's trying to impose its will or the illiberal forces in this case. This really is a moment of truth. To your question about the electoral politics of it, I mean, I think the obvious answer is, yeah, of course, they would be disappointed because the best way to be a leader is to be a leader. And sometimes being a leader in a democracy means that you end up doing things that aren't popular, but they're the right thing to do in the bigger scheme of things and for the longer term of the democracy. And I think we have a tendency sometimes to get lost in whatever the minutia of the minute is in our news cycles, and our news cycles move so fast. But to me, from a autocracy versus democracy standpoint, and really, what are the risks that American democracy faces? There's really only two issues going on right now that matter in the bigger scope of who we are as a nation. One is what's happening in the one six committee, and the other is the conversations about raising the debt ceiling, which has been kicked down the road a couple of months infrastructure, all the rest of it, are they important? Are they big issues? Yeah, absolutely. But are they going to be determinant to whether democracy continues in the United States? No. But those two issues, and in the case of 1-6, we're reaching a moment of truth with whether or not Congress will execute the powers that it has. And let me just say one thing as an aside on the debt ceiling. So McConnell caves, says, let's do this until December, which, of course, sets up another fight for December. Schumer goes on the floor. I didn't even see the speech, to be candid, but I read the reports that, you know, Mitt Romney is, you know, beside himself. And Mitch McConnell says, after this outburst today, you will get no more votes from Republicans on the debt ceiling. You know, it's interesting, and I've noticed this especially with Romney, is that Romney seems to be the guy who's like swung towards the hardest position on the debt ceiling of all the people who you would think would be maybe more moderate and more reasonable. And that's been confusing to me. And I don't know if that's politics at home here in Utah, although he's not up until 24. But that just seems to be a weird thing. 
because remember too, it's like these are the guys who who went out and racked up trillions of dollars of debt on their dad's black card and now says, I don't want to pay the bill. To me, it seems like McConnell got a raft of shit for caving and now he's got to look like the tough guy. But let's be clear, once we're getting close to Christmas again, JP Morgan's going to call, Morgan Stanley's going to call, Goldman's going to call. All these people are going to call and be like, Mitch, you're not going to let that thing go down. You're not going to have this happen on your watch. Because if it happens on your watch, it happens on our watch. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Well, I mean, four days after the riots at the Capitol occurred, McConnell's top political advisor, Josh Holmes. Who people call the 51st senator. Yeah, the 51st senator. You know, was quoted as saying that you have a permanent governing majority if you could have Trumpism without the insanity. And of course, what Josh is missing is the insanity is the coalition. But they're also reaching a point where the rubber meets the road in that McConnell is pinched, right? You can't manage between the two. You either don't walk off the ledge and destroy another foundation of what has made America great, our reserve currency status being the last refuge for capital. You can't walk off the ledge by defaulting on our debt. And there is far more sovereign political risk today. And I think ultimately Mitt Romney is going to be in the same pinch. There's far more sovereign political risk today in the U.S. that we could end up defaulting on that debt. And it would be because of what we were talking about earlier, the dysfunction in our politics that led to one six ending up leading to a situation where you have miscalculations and you end up not raising the debt ceiling and technically defaulting. It's a confluence of issues. As I once told a friend who was a senior person at one of the big four or five banks, I said, y'all do this again. The torches and pitchforks are coming for you and not a lot of people are going to feel bad for you. All right. Well, so let's move on. You mentioned when we were talking about the committee that Steve Scalise had gone on one of the Sunday shows, and I believe it was Chris Wallace and Fox News Sunday asked him repeatedly about whether or not Biden had won the 2020 election. And Steve Scalise gave a less than comforting answer when basically he didn't give one, right? He was not going to commit that the 2020 election wasn't stolen. And I put this in the context of now we've seen in the last week or so, maybe 10 days, maybe even two weeks, now you're starting to see a lot of the, whether or not it's never Trump conservatives, whether or not it's the sort of standard New York Times, Washington Post, talking heads, former administration officials from both parties, now starting to say, Trigby, like democracy is on the line. This is not about Republican politics. This is not about Democratic politics. This is about the future of the country, which is stuff that unfortunately we've been saying since we founded you know, the Lincoln Project almost two years ago, that this was something that like the Republican Party had morphed into something that none of us recognized it, however many years we'd worked for it. We said that again when we endorsed Joe Biden in May of 2020. We said it again when we asked our former friends and colleagues in October of 2020, if Donald Trump does not go quietly, where will you stand? Most of them have told us that now. After the election, we said it's going to take a grand coalition to fight this off because now it's going to be worse. January 6th, as you noted, was the kickoff to Trumpism. Trumpism has rolled down the road in many states, right? We now see Florida, Texas, Mississippi, you name it, we're seeing Trumpism in action. And now folks are finally coming around to that. My question is, is it too late? I'm glad that folks are coming to this realization. We've got the opinion pages. How do we get to everyday Americans? Let me start with why is it happening? I don't know exactly 
but I would say I think it hasn't hurt that there's been a whole lot of people, including all of us and people who listen to this podcast, saying that we've got a real problem here and democracy is on the line. So I'm glad it's happened. Is it too late? No, I don't believe it's too late. But I also think that as people start to say democracy is on the line here and start to realize it, they're going to start taking a closer look at how big the stakes are and how big the problem is. And there's going to be a whole lot of people who are like, man, this is maybe even worse than we think. You know, in terms of how do we turn that corner, we've got to keep talking about it. We've got to keep calling out the people that are trying to have it both ways. And our friends at AT AT&T are discovering that we're calling it out because they've gone from the company that is encouraging people to reach out and touch somebody to the company that's reaching out and touching people through OANN. So we have got to get to a place, and the more people that are talking about it, the better off we are. We've got to get to a place where people stop trying to manage it and start taking action and pull their heads out of the sand and say, if we don't get this right in 2022, starting in 2022, if we don't get this right on Thursday, if we don't get it right, corporate America doesn't start saying to the people who are saying, we're going to walk off the ledge with the debt ceiling, we aren't going to make it out of it. And so we're reaching the point where we're going to have to start having actions, not trying to just hope it goes away. So one of those things, let's start with the latter and then we'll go with the former, the hoping it goes away is the, you know, oh, you've got a spot on your lungs. Don't worry about it. I feel fine. It's a rough metaphor, but you know, you got a spot on your lungs, you should probably have somebody look at it. Ignoring it and hoping it will go away doesn't work. The other part too, which is this whole concept of managing it. In order to manage something, I think you must understand it. And I think that's a bigger part of our problem, not only for the elite media, the inside the beltway gang, but also a lot of voters that we're going to need to vote, frankly, for Democrats in 2022, is that it hasn't yet hit home. There's still chaos from COVID. There's schools. Everybody's trying to get back to some semblance of normalcy. The world doesn't want to allow that. I think that's putting an increased level of stress on everybody else. So a lot of folks are distracted by their normal lives, which not surprising, right? That's what happens. And this is the other part too, right? Folks don't want to hear about this shit anymore. They want to go back to their lives. They want to have a boring government that does what it's supposed to do, that they don't have to hear about, that they don't have to have shoved in their face, that they don't have to see on their Facebook pages. That's what they want. The problem is, is that that sort of involuntary blindness also could lead to very bad things because by the time the scales fall from their eyes, is it November 9th of 2022? And, you know, Jim Jordan's taking the gavel in the House and Mitch McConnell or somebody worse, such as it is, is taking the gavel in the U.S. Senate. That's my concern is that we are doing our best. And I think that we need all of our friends in the pro-democracy coalition to do that. But we got to do it faster. And I think we've got to do it louder because this is the other part, too, about, you know, banning all these guys. They're not going to stop acting badly. Not one of them, other than the people who stormed the Capitol steps personally, have faced one iota of sanction for their actions either active or passive. Yeah, I mean, I'm up in Boston today and I was having lunch with a friend who has a similar background to mine working 
on democracy in various places around the world. As we were talking, he made a good point, which is the dangerous period is the one we're in now because people assume that, well, the threat's passed, I can go back to my life. Whereas the illiberal side, they're still going. Yes, they were forced to retreat, but they haven't stopped. And the defying of the subpoenas is a test. And so it's a question, will that test be met? But it's also true with Trump in this phase, as people are wanting to go back, okay, God, I don't want to have to worry about that anymore. I can sleep better at night. The other side is still moving. And you're seeing all kinds of things across the country, little signs that each taken individually maybe could be discounted, but it's really the death by a thousand paper cuts. And, you know, you've heard me say before, democracy dies in silence and it dies in silence of all of those little paper cuts that are going on. And it's easy to be silent when it seems like the threat isn't there. So to that end, it's good that talking heads have started to wake up and are now seeing, hey, democracy is really on the line here. But at the same time, go back to Scalise on Fox News, right? Like that's the number two Republican in the House. He would be majority leader if Republicans take the House under Speaker Jordan. And that's what he's pandering to be. But he knows that if he comes out and says, yeah, Joe Biden won the election, that eliminates his career in terms of what he wants to be. I mean, it's incredibly dangerous. This period that we're in now to 2022, and even if Republicans don't take back either of the houses, it doesn't abate the danger. This is a long-term conflict that's gonna be continuing. As we look at this then, now we have to look into 22, right? Now we have an election coming up in Virginia, in just a few weeks, Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin, where we have been active in the last seven to 10 days, just dropping content and bombs all over Youngkin's head because he wants to be Mitt Romney in Northern Virginia and Donald Trump in, you know, the rest of the state. And so we see, you know, he's trying to ride that razor's edge for the next three weeks. It's very close so far. And then we see a guy like Greg Abbott, to your point of this sort of Trumpism in action thing that I mentioned, where last night he issued an executive order saying that any entity in the state of Texas, public or private, was thereby banned from enforcing a vaccination mandate on its employees, which is bananas because, one, I'm pretty sure there's not legislative authority, which is how all executive orders are derived, to do that. And secondly, there's already superseding federal legislation. And lastly, it's just bananas. But every time you see this guy think he's going to get in trouble on his right flank. He just does something else. And so far, maybe it's because the only sanction we have is an election. Other than his declining poll numbers, nobody in the state pushes back on him. The legislature doesn't push back. Certainly Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, doesn't push back. Ken Paxton, the insane attorney general under federal indictment for God knows how many years, doesn't push back. And so I think what you're seeing here is whether or not it's this executive order, whether or not it's SB1 on voting, whether or not it's SB8 on abortion. These guys are running roughshod, and then they're saying, well, you know, we're doing it to protect the people, but they're doing it all from their cloistered offices in Austin. Like, it's not representative democracy. When I saw that Abbott did that, the first thought that I had is, 
he's not going to get any pushback that's going to mean anything to Greg Abbott in Texas. But I wonder if, and this is something, you know, our supporters who use their products, our supporters who are investors, our supporters who are in places that have sway, what is Tim Cook thinking? I mean, Tim Cook probably could say something given the amount of business that Apple and production, et cetera, has there. Elon Musk, Oracle, I think, is now based there. You know, I can't quite figure the Southwest Airlines thing out because Southwest is saying, oh, it isn't about vaccinations and COVID, but it sure seems to be that way. And the impact on average people is you've got people who are sitting with canceled Southwest flights across the country because you have the seeping extremism seeping into businesses. It's another level of risk. And you've got people like Greg Abbott fanning the flames. The question is, when are those entities that have massive business presence in Texas, if they speak out, but I think they're afraid, right? They've been being told by Republicans now for a while, if you do that, we're going to label you a woke corporation. We're going to make threats of retaliation. Those are classic illiberal moves. But They've got a time for choosing, to use the words of Reagan. And I do think if you're Abbott, if enough of them said something, that it raises questions about the business climate in Texas, which has been the reason why those companies have been moving there, that he might listen to. Well, but, you know, the Texas Association of Business, which I guess functions as the statewide business organization down there, you know, 10 days ago gave him some, you know, inaugural business hero award or something. And of course, I assume they did that because they were leaned on as he's heading into what seems to be a more contentious primary. But to your point, like AT&T sits in Dallas, doesn't say a word. The Southwest Air CEO is like, oh, I'm not really for vaccines, but you know, the feds tell me I got to do it. So I'm going to keep doing it. You know, he sort of weaseled his way out of that. To your point, you know, you've got business associations, you've got big employers. Mark Benioff of Salesforce says, you want out of Texas, we'll move you out. Tim Cook says, you want to get an abortion somewhere else, we'll pay for it. Not exactly what you'd call a profile in courage, but I guess given their actions recently in places like Russia, I guess that's maybe not what we should expect anymore. Well, you know, you say this all the time. It's a lack of imagination. They don't want to admit that it's a problem. But I can tell you, Tim Cook can say, well, if you want to get an abortion, we'll get you out of Texas. Never mind, it begs the question, will someone report Tim Cook to the authorities for encouraging abortions? But the reality is, what kind of answer is that? There has to be some linkage between some of that crazy that's occurring, and there has to be consequences for it. You and I have talked about this a lot. Corporate America, you know, they've got people in their government affairs shops who are telling them we've got to maintain relationships with both sides. We've got to stay on good terms. If we say something, we run the risk. Oh my God, what could happen? But it's a different game. It's a zero-sum game that's being played. I will say you talked about the upcoming 2022 elections and Abbott. Certainly Texas, you know, there's going to be a big governor's race there. But there's also going to be big governor's races in states that have massive impact on 2024. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona. And those governor's races are going to matter immensely in terms of what we saw in 2020 and the game that was being played 
And the reality is 2022 and people who run campaigns love to make every election and certainly politicians like to make every election the most important of your lifetime. But the 2022 elections are going to be the most important elections of people's lifetimes until the next one in 2024. And those governor's races are going to matter immensely. And the Virginia one matters, if for no other reason than momentum. You're absolutely right about Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. And you can already see that a couple of these people who are running, I guess we'd call them the front runners for the Republican nominations, are out of their gourds. They're not even Glenn Youngkin, right? They've already gone like Kelly Ward or whatever that crazy woman's name is in Arizona. Like they have decided running as far to the Trump side of the aisle as we can is where we're going to start from. Not even where we're going to get to, but where we're going to start from. Basically saying what Romney said in was it his 2012 race, right? The whole idea is you run to the right in the primary and you run back to the middle in the, in the general, which everybody knows. You just don't hear people say it out loud very often. You know, at least we're going to try and make it impossible for folks to do that. But in Virginia, I mean, I was trading emails with an old family friend who's still a very old line Republican who's supporting Youngkin. And they said, he'll be good. He'll be good. I said, he won't. Here's what I know. I know his type. He gets elected. He's going to go to Richmond. And immediately the far right wing of the Virginia Republican Party is going to be all over him. And he will cave in a heartbeat because he doesn't have the stomach for it. They never have the stomach for it. Their inclination is not to stand up. It is to become supine and hope that if they do what they're told or they do what they're threatened with, that they'll be left alone. But of course, as you and I know, as we go back to the beginning of this conversation, it never works out that way. Yeah. And I mean, part of this is what does every governor see looking back at them in the mirror when they get up in the morning? A future president. What does every United States senator see? And hence, they do what they do. And I think, Youngkin, that will be it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a real box. And the reality is it's human nature, right, to have to be on alert all the time. is exhausting. And so people are, you know, to your point, they want to get back to their lives. The problem with it is they want to ignore the realities around them. So, well, what can I come up with for a creative solution that will solve it? But at some point, rather than solving each of the individuals, they have to look at the bigger arc of what's happening. And it's our job to speak truth to power. And it's our job. And when I say our job, not just yours and mine, but the people who are listening to this to recognize we each need to get up every day and think, how do we attack that vertical that is the power structure in today's Republican Party? That's why to take the conversation full circle, when you think about the decision the 1-6 commission is going to have to make about Steve Bannon and these others that they defy subpoenas, the other side is going to be watching them. Are they willing to go all the way? And going all the way means rounding them up and putting them in jail and saying, this is what we do. We're a country of rule of law, not just in words, but in actions. Well, listen, let's hope that, you know, by the time that our listeners are hearing this, that Steve Bannon has been held to account for what will almost assuredly be a defied subpoena, whether or not it's that Ali Alexander, whether or not it's Dan Scavino, whether or not it's Mark Meadows or any of the other people who were so clearly involved either directly or indirectly, but certainly in spirit with what happened not only on January 6th, but leading up to it. So Trigvi, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online? 
Well, they can find me on Twitter at Trigby, T-R-Y-G-V-E Olson, O-L-S-O-N. And every week, at least once, I put out a thread on some tactic of the game that we're playing versus the one that we're forced to play. So if people are interested in kind of the bigger thoughts about democracy and the battle we have, they can find that there. So that's probably the easiest way. As always, everybody, too, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Trigvi, again, thanks for joining me. Everybody, we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.